0: Hey, if you're loving creative mind, check out some of our past episodes where we dive deep into topics like children's book illustration, video game design, filmmaking, and of course, the most important topic of all, how do you make a living as an artist? So please hit subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on so you never miss an episode. And check out the show notes for links to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube page for even more great content.
1: No one cares about your art. People only care about themselves. So if you make that person feel good by your interaction with them and you help them solve their problem, then you will always have a job bringing your best self and your best tools and your best work to them. You will never have a career unless you learn how to solve other people's problems with your best work.
0: That is really all around artist, Forrest Stearns. And it's hard to kind of peg Forrest down as one thing. You know, illustrator, painter, designer, uh, Svengali, waver of hands, whatever you want to say. In the new year that we're thinking about how to make ourselves better, looking for inspiration, learning how to sell, come up with new ideas, Forrest really has the type of energy that is just that good, swift, kick in the backside you need to get you going on your work. And I say that because every time I've talked with Forrest, and I've had the pleasure of talking to him several times since this and looking at the work he does, you sit there and you listen to Forrest and you go, I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm excited. And I need to go out and buy some pens and paper and paint and get going because I want to do what you're doing. So grab that pen, grab that paper, take some notes. And here we are with Forrest Stearns. This sounds obnoxious, but you're living the dream and you need to explain how that came about because not everybody's getting to do all the cool stuff you're doing. Why did you decide to start doing big art pieces in a corporate setting?
1: I think that how I decided to do that was I just drew in my sketchbook and continued to practice and continue to practice and continue to steal great ideas and continue to read really good books and work with friends and work with the community and work with my team on how to always push ourselves to be better and always challenge ourselves to get better and always have the ability to ask for permission to do the things you don't think you can quite do yet. And that takes you upward. And my trajectory took me through a good decade of saying yes to almost every single project that came to me. And in the beginning, I wasn't a great artist in the beginning. I wasn't technically all that proficient at handling an illustration. So you would look at it and I would be able to put you where I wanted you to, to see the intention of that piece, but it really came down to practice. And you know, 20 years into being a professional, my sketchbook is still really my tool. I've got one with me at all times. And that's what got me doing artwork everywhere is because I never stopped doing artwork from when I was early on a beginner and you know all of my bad decisions all of my shitty artwork happens in my sketchbook so then it can be amazing when I do get to those opportunities and to me it doesn't matter if it's corporation or with you or with my kid or with anybody I always want to do great work because I've failed my ass off in my sketchbook so much (laughs) you
0: list yourself as an illustrator correct is that how you yeah absolutely Okay, and the sketchbook is your tool. It's your calling card. It's your everyday. Like, what do you do here? Look at my sketchbook because it's very well, difficult to explain. But, I need or... to,
1: but hold that though. Um, okay. My sketchbook isn't where I necessarily draw a lot. My sketchbook is where I write down every single creative idea I have all the time, every day, day in and day out. When I first started, I would have end-to-end page killers in my sketchbook. I came from a background of street art and graffiti and fine mm-hmm. art. So every single page in my sketchbook needed to be fresh, but I'll look (laughs) at my sketchbook now and like, I'll have these funny, stupid monsters and graffiti letters and wild drawings in between 100 pages of immaculate notes from my conversations, notes on ideas, notes on how I can solve problems for people and myself, how I can take my design business further, how I can make my art better. Now you see my sketchbook. It's all about what does the inside of my brain look like? And I will jump into my sketchbook and draw 100 really bad, fast drawings, and then get on a canvas and make that canvas really tight because I hashed out all of the problems that I thought I was going to have beforehand. And then I get on there and it's just like freestyling with my trumpet and playing some amazing jazz standards. You know, when you're warmed up, when you're ready to win, you win.
0: That's what you're learning at art school. That's what you're learning as you're being an artist. And that's what you're learning when you realize, okay, this is the path I want to go down. But how did that start for you? Did you just wake up, you know, high school and go, I'm going to be an artist? Were you a kid? Was it when somebody, you know, gave you a box of cans of Krylon? When Mm. did this idea of I want to do art professionally take hold in you?
1: I was preened from an early age to, one, appreciate art and be comfortable around artwork. I grew up in a small town up by Yosemite. And I'm an only child. My parents are both very creative. My mom was a nurse and then became a self-made designer. When I was young, she wanted to stay at home with me and wanted to have a business that she could do at home while I was underfoot growing up in a small town. And my dad was a builder and a cabinet maker. He made amazing cabinets. Oh, wow. Very strong attention to detail. I got all the tools in his shop or the garage. And he would take me in there and show me how to build things and how to measure three times and really be immaculate with the detail of why to build it out. He would tell me that he's not that creative, but if I drew something for him to scale, he could build me anything. If I was to give him the scale drawing, you know, he's not the type of guy that's going to go grab us like a big stone and like carve out a figure. But if I was to give him the measurements of a figure, he would mash it out into oak or maple, you know, like cherry wood, like, damn, dad, that's like perfect. So I really was brought up in that mindset of you have permission to be creative. You have permission to follow this, but you don't have permission to really sit down and be bored. So you always need to be doing something, always need to be helping out in the house, doing your chores, mm-hmm. doing something to help our design businesses. My parents weren't rich. They were self-made. And so I was always helping them because they were entrepreneurs. They always put me to work. And I think it's that work ethic next to the permission to do art that got me doing... I was an illustrator when I was in elementary school. My mom had me doing commissions for folks, you know, drawing commissions in elementary school. I was doing paintings and putting them in the local art show and the county fair and whatnot, winning awards because my mom was pushing me and my friends to do that. She's like, y'all need to show up. Like none of this, right. like sit and watching cartoon stuff. Like you can do a little bit of that, but like make something of yourself, you little ragamuffins. Like either, either you either go time outside, to
0: lean. And... <laughs> you got time to
1: dream, you little brats. Get little out of my brats, house. like go outside and adventure or be drawing. Like do it. So I came up in that mentality, and it never stopped. Really, dear friends of mine that that we became close doing artwork in elementary school. Some of them I'm still really tight with and we still do our work. So it's all about that practice, man. It's all about how to bring your team together, what brings you together, what inspirations and going and adventuring and chasing those adventures for sure. And it wasn't necessarily a dream to be an Mm -hmm. artist. It was just not a dream, not to be an artist. You know, art has always been my drug of choice. Art has always been the thing that has called me back. I wanted to be a fireman. I wanted to be an EMT. I've had a crazy jobs. I've been around the world doing crazy jobs, like fishing boats and riding horses and all these wild things. But <laughs> art has always been this thing that draws me back. It's like, Hey, you're good at this. Come back. You can make a living. It's fun. It's weird. You'll meet some trippy people. And yeah, it's a really fun old friend that never stops calling me where everything else was like, cool. You're almost good at this. Good luck.
0: (laughs) (laughs) See, that makes this conversation worse because you're like, no, 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 I'm pretty good and I've I've made a living. It's like, no, man, that's not what I want to hear. I want to hear the struggles. Like, no, man, I, you know, 60 years, 5,000 hours a day, nonstop, you know, jamming a pencil in my eye. I hated it. Like, no, no, man, it's just it's cool. It's all. Oh, no,
1: I've loved artwork and I never knew that artwork could take me to the places that it has taken me. You know, I look at my career now, I am so blessed that I have made these decisions to get me to the spaces. And it's not easy. Art is a damn hard thing because I'm constantly having to reinvent the universe every time I see a blank page or a blank canvas.
0: We're going to bounce around on that because, I mean, your career is fascinating and something that has, and I'm I'm not going to deflate it, you did something very simple in that you started to ask people to do work for them. Is that yeah, really ultim- just how we would I mean, <laughs> Which yeah. is so bizarre because so many people are like, well, how do I get art? And then they cross their hands over their chest and go,
1: well, no one's calling me
0: today, so I guess I'm not going to work. But you did yeah. something slightly different?
1: Yeah. Well, I think what I did different was I listened to my parents early on. And when they said, hey, if you want to make something of yourself, figure out how to go to college. And so I took the long route, the long, adventurous, circuitous route through life and <laughs> venturing and going to junior colleges and then undergrad and like figuring out on the slow boat with my homies, and we all just really got good because we were really passionate, but we weren't technically good yet. To that point of asking for permission, let me think that through. You just show up with your best work. I have asked for permission to do some pretty wild things. You know, we'll get to the space art thing, right? but it's just like, be ready, be ready to do your artwork. I was gonna say, my idea came back to me, my mom early on was a designer and she's very charismatic. Everybody loves my mom. She's like the damn mayor of her county. She's amazing. <laughs> and she told me, she's like, everyone's trying to sell something. And not a lot of people are artists, not a lot of people are designers. So if you can go find those people who are trying to sell something and you're a good designer or a good illustrator, or a good painter, you make things beautiful for them, if you can bring their ideas to life, you have always got work. Like you're always going to nail it. And I was in a small town and really that was my trajectory. Then I was like, cool. You know, this is a pretty small community, but my mom knows everybody. I'll never not have a job if I draw well. So, you know, that was really the permission I needed. It wasn't the permission to go conquer and be famous. I've never really wanted to be famous. I just wanted to be really good and work with amazingly uh, smart people.
0: And that's kind of a fascinating thing that I think a lot of us forget or almost never get to the point where we're like, do you want to be rich or do you want to be working? Because they're two mm. very different things a lot of times. Because, I mean, I think so many of us are, or at least the goal should be, you're working, you're, you're actually creating. Because a lot of times if you're just chasing the dollar, it's like, well, I'm working on one project and it's going through 5,000 revisions and I'm not
1: really creating anything. Yeah. If Bobby, you're... I got a question for you. Yeah. So what's your definition of art? oh come on man
0: uh my definition of art is something that something i can't do that's either visual visual or sound that brings about an emotion okay so emotion what's your definition of of design something technical i'll never be able to accomplish Nice. Something technical, something, something, <laughs> something technical, su- something, something te- mechanical, something systematic. You, so you, you, you mentioned the, the cabinet maker, you know, you know, a lot of us who own yeah, homes do, yeah, or, yeah. Or, you know, you do the DIY something Like this is design. Hanging drywall is design
1: to me because well, it's extremely okay.
0: technical and it's easy. Some parts until you try and do it and you're like, this is technical cabinet making. Oh my God. Is that technical? That is That's a brain, a side of your brain. I can't fit. My brain does not do that. I can pick a color. I can throw shit on it. But actually measuring three times and and cutting it once, never going to (laughs) happen. Still doesn't happen when I try to make stuff. To me, that's design mm -hmm. because it it requires a technical Mm
1: -hmm. love. But don't you think that if you have a beautiful painting that is technically driven, you know, that has the elements and principles of design, you're working technically, but if you decide to make it a modif, then it can definitely fit in the art realm. But if that oh, same, absolutely. if that same piece is only technical and has some words on it, and it may be the cover of a, a business journal, or, you know, maybe a cover of a, a yearly monthly report or something for a business. It's all about where you imbue that emotion into the presentation, where the intention of the piece becomes mm-hmm. art. And, or if you're solving specifically solving problems with the system of marks, then it's really more design. Let's look at one level higher than that to your question of rich or working. The one thing that I've really found that has benefited me as a creative, I think creative is the ability to straddle the emotion world of art and the systemic world of design is creativity. And when I'm able to compartmentalize my ego and my feelings into the art side of my conversation. And then also take my emotions out of the business design system side of my life and make money. I've got no problem making money if my ego is not attached to it. Then I can give, uh, money can flow in and out of my life. I can buy the things that I need. I can be frugal. I can you know go on a vacation if I need to spend money on my family, whatever. I just keep those two things separated. The only real difference in my life is that when I need to do artwork, that is emotive, I intentionally go there. When I do artwork that needs to be systems based problem solving work, I intentionally go there and I don't muddy the pond unless the work needs to have an emotional context and then I imbue it on there intentionally. A thing that artists get in trouble with is they think that Being a starving artist is all about the emotion. And they think that being a technical artist is, you know, the other side of that. And to me, it's like, you'll never be a starving artist if you practice your ass off and figure out where the problems are, as long as you can go solve problems with your creativity and your design skills, but don't imbue emotion where emotion's not needed or asked for. Because mm. then you'd be a crying, starving artist because you hadn't <laughs> solved a problem. You just have viewed emotion to it. Sorry, that's my, that's my rant, no, no, my that's, soapbox rant on that.
0: No, that's great because that's something that I wanted to ask you about. Like you hear, you know, at any art school, not just the academy, you, you hear a lot of people say when they're talking on the serious side of being an artist, problem solving. And I yeah. think a lot of people don't equate art with problem solving. What has led you down that path and how has that, the idea of problem solving become part of your work?
1: Well, the thing that led me down that path was I had a, a junior college art degree first and we learned some tips and tricks, almost kind of some Bob Ross art styling for junior college. And then I got into my undergraduate work and I came in as an intermediate painter because I'd done a bunch of paintings, junior college paintings, which weren't very good. I was just hungry to do art. Mm -hmm. And we were taught for three years of a fine art degree to be really conceptual, to consider what is your work about and how does it relate to other artwork in art history? And, you know, where does it fit within the spectrum and where does other art fit within the spectrum when it existed? The gallery, the art gallery. Yeah. How does it make you feel? So I was doing a ton of work and showing my work and I got real tired real quick of doing a painting. And then letting it go from my very small little humble studio, or, or we'd be out playing air painting and it would go into a gallery and I would wait for some other person to sell my work for me. And then I would only get half of it back when they finally <laughs> sold it. Be like, here's a thousand dollar painting that I worked really hard on in my twenties. And they sold over a thousand and here's $500 back. Then you got to pay taxes on. Wow. I just lost my ass on that equation <laughs> and they, the, right. the person sold it to The wonderful person who came into the gallery and resonated with this, you know, random painting that I did. Most of my paintings were pretty random, pretty wild, sci-fi, art, graffiti influenced. You know, they'd look at these pieces and be like, that's going to match my couch. And cool. (laughs) Like, if your intention of coming to a gallery was to find a piece of art that matches your couch and my piece matches your couch, that's fine. But... If the docent is selling works that happen to be green and red to people who want green and red pieces, and that's the only attribute of that painting to sell, then I do not want my work to be sold in that manner. I learned that early on that that was a very boring equation for me. When I would go to my art show openings and I got to meet all the people, then I got to really hustle and respond and ask questions and answer questions and be in conversation. And I was hyped on that. So I thought, where can I meet my clients in the middle, where can I bring their ideas to life? And where can I continue to nurture a relationship with them? That's when I realized that illustration was the answer for that. Illustration was I could bring light to words, I could bring light with drawings, and I could meet in the middle and be an illuminator. And when I realized that, I did a little back search on what is what is the track for illustration. I found Academy of Art again in my life. And He said, go here to study illustration because it will show you the business and the technique of illustration. And I was always into technique. Like I said, my dad was a a wood guy. He liked to be very precise. My mom was a beautiful calligrapher. She engraved glasses and did design. Very precise, beautiful work. So I knew I wanted to be a designer of problem solving, but I wanted to do it in my own style. So all of a sudden I got into illustration work and doing children's books. And I was like, I'm drawing exactly what I want to draw for a client that loves my work, that wants to bring their ideas to life and they'll pay me up front and they'll give me royalties. Hey, all of a sudden I didn't have to wait for my piece of fine art to wait in a gallery to be sold to some stranger. All of a sudden I got to work with the person that was buying my work and I got to keep the painting. How does this all work? I won the lottery.
0: It's funny, i had asked, uh, you know, you probably took several classes with him, I asked Chuck Pyle, the, you know, the former head of illustration, I said, so what's the difference between an illustrator and a fine artist? And he goes, well, an illustrator eats out a lot more than a fine artist. And I was like, oh, okay, That's, you know makes a lot of sense. He's like, yeah. oh yeah, yeah, we're working, fine artists are thinking.
1: Yeah, it, I mean, I don't think that an illustrator doesn't work. I mean, doesn't sure, think, sure. but um, I mean, thanks to audiobooks, I can draw and think. Chuck's got a good point. I didn't take any classes with Chuck because I was a graduate student and he was in undergrad, but I have become dear friends with him. He's an amazing mentor of mine now. And you know, 10, 12 years out, out of the program. He's right because people who work well, continue to get a paycheck and can go out to eat people who wait for other people to sell their work, wait and wait and wait and wait, I know great artists, much better artists than me that have never been successful selling paintings. Because they're waiting for that gallery to do the work for them. You know, they're not hustling. They're not out meeting people. They're not shaking hands. They're not finding opportunities. They're not sharing their practice sketchbooks with other people.
0: Here's a question that popped into my head. To you, what is the more creative part? The mark making and the imagery or the hustling?
1: Early on, I would have been very jaded and said, it's all about the mark making. It's all about every mark has a story. You know, you walk around the streets and you see all these marks and and tags and whatnot on the streets. And every one of those marks drew me in and I wanted to find the story about it, what was the intention here. But you know, as I become more and more learned about the game of value, like what is value Hmm. and what is the value of art? What is the value of finance? What's the value of a good education? What's the value of teaching your kid how to not pee their pants? Like what's the value of getting (laughs) good sleep? What's the value of eating healthy, right? Not drinking every night. All these things really have me on the thought of there's nothing more creative than understanding how to create value for people. That's a universal thing in every single business, in every single country, people are trying to create value for other people. There's nothing more creative to than that. And I may be a very good illustrator. I may be able to crush a piece, a a giant mural, or, or go out and do some street art and like really nail. A common conversation, contemporary piece. Great. That's awesome. But that could have been really formulaic and, and I could have been drawing, you know, painting my numbers right out of, from a sketch and not saying anything. No creativity needed, just technicality of getting on scaffolding and getting up and doing it where I need to be damn creative in order to go out and meet the public and figure out what are they interested in? And then use that creatively to use my own tools and make something for them. And that's damn creative. So when it's in the translation and the intention is to solve a problem with your tools that you have studied so hard, that's when you use your creativity the most, you know, whether you're imbuing it with emotion or whether you're in absolutely nailing it with systems. So then. Tell me what's the problem,
0: and I want to get into some of the big flagship pieces that you're known for. What's the problem you're solving when you're bringing art to space?
1: And, nice. that's, yeah. not, and that's not yeah. a
0: cynical question because, it, you know, a lot of people who are the art school people, are the art lovers, and then they look and they go, that's a great idea. I wish I thought of that. And then it just goes away. And then there's the the non careers like, that's actually a really good idea. Why didn't I think of that? And then it goes away, but you made it permanent. You made it happen. Yeah. So what was that problem you were solving to bring art to space other than I want to bring art to space?
1: That's a beautiful question. And that's the question of when your car breaks down, you don't show up with one wrench, right? Right. You don't show up with like (laughs) one tool. You go, you take your toolbox, your mechanics toolbox out to your car and you assess the situation with your tools. And then hopefully you have the right size socket and the right wrench and the right da 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 blah blah blahs to fix the problem at hand. And that problem could have four or five different facets where you need a number of tools to get in and actually get that thing done and fixed and back on the road. Why? What's the value of art and space? Why do we put art in space? Well, to unpack that a little bit, to bring it back a little bit, why do we put art on anything? Because we're a mark-making species. Because we're super intrigued by pattern recognition, and by stories. And if you have someone unpack a story in front of you because you drew something on something, then you're going to stop them from daydreaming and being in their own head, and they're going to be in your head. And then you can kind of direct them to do something that you want them to do. I mean, advertising is all about this. Marketing is all about this. Really good illustration is all about this. And so why art and space? You know, art and space wasn't dissimilar from art on anything else to me. It was a beautiful challenge and maybe a venue that had never been painted on. But to me, I saw that it would bring value to immediately to the culture at hand. It would bring interest and awe in the Duende to the culture that surrounded these pieces. I wanted to do art in space, (laughs) I guess first and foremost, I wanted to do it because I didn't know if a street artist had ever put art in space. Cool. I could be that first person. I could be first, first ups. I could be all city in space. (laughs) And so so I kind of saw the challenge first. I asked for permission to paint on a spaceship. You can watch the TED talk to hear how that all went. It went fun. It was, you know, knocked it out of the park on that one, not knowing that I was even in a park to knock it out of. But, you know, putting art on things in a common conversation makes people stop, gives people the breath to have contemplative moments When you put art up in a social venue, like a corporation or a gallery, it gives someone a permission to go stand in front of it and actually have some breaths and be in themselves and be there, be present. When people are present, they work harder. They like each other more. When you put art on things, it makes the audience want to know more about it. My dear friend and comrade at Google, my collaborator there, Eric, He said he wanted to work with me because I successfully broke the opaque sphere of hard science with artwork. And that brought in an audience that never would have been interested in these very unique and serious types of science. Right. I put artwork on spaceships. Spaceships aren't that interesting. They're like boxes, boxes that fold out. You know, my shoebox is just as interesting as the spaceship visually. But as soon as you draw on it, then you're like, oh, wow. That is a a packet of sensors that actually is telling a story. Tell me more about the story and how does it relate to the sensors? And all of a sudden I've got your attention for a very long time. When you start putting art on things in a corporation, people start to get involved and they want to ask questions. In the case of an artist in residence, putting art on spaceships, I was doing big paintings. I learned how to do big impactful paintings in my history of doing a lot of live art and big paintings in school. And so I was like, I'm not going to do small drawings and work on my computer all the time. I'm going to do four by six foot paintings in the aerospace lab. And every single person that walks by these pieces is going to be visually assaulted by them. I'm going to, with my artistic skills, reach out of this painting and grab these people by their shoulders and say, look at me. You know, that's our skill as loud, bold, obnoxious designers. It's like we can grab people's attention.
0: That's your graffiti background, I'm guessing. There's something about graffiti artists. It's a giant. Colossal, awesome fuck you to everybody in the best way. Where it's like every time I met a graffiti artist, it's like, oh fuck, why am I not doing that?
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that looks like the it, coolest
0: thing ever. It feels, it, lo- it looks like fun. it feels cool.
1: It feels good. It feels good to express yourself on a wall. It feels good to express yourself on any big surface. And You know, my intention was, how can I get eyes on this canvas in this very non-traditional art space? I love a good juxtaposition. I love being a rabble rouser and throwing some contrast into life, you know, some spice. And so I got into this aerospace lab. I knew my goal was to put art on spaceships. I could have easily gotten in in my vector program and made myself some really high contrast vector drawings. But no one would have seen it. So I needed to use, I had stepped in to like put on my fine art hat and made a big giant painting, put on my street artist hat and put my damn painting in the middle, almost the middle of the walkway. So everyone would have to see it. (laughs) Instead of doing, you know, traditional graffiti letters, I grew up in nature. I love nature. So I transformed my bold mark and started painting animals instead. Like let's celebrate nature when the beauty and the obnoxiousness of graffiti letters is that they're done in a way that makes them camouflage to the, the reader sensibilities. And it is a big fuck you to the world and saying, you can't read my stuff. And I was bold enough to put it right in front of you in your space and you can't read it, so therefore I made you feel dumb. Mm. And you know, I've done enough of that. I don't necessarily want to make people feel dumb anymore. I want to make people feel what, why did you put an animal on that canvas and you're telling me you're going to put that on a spaceship? Like why? <laughs> that none of this even makes any sense. But I got the whole room room for me when i do it, trying to pull this, this stunt off, right? So, Art on the Spaceships was really about how can I solve the problem? And it was a hell of a lot of problems to actually get artwork on the spaceship. It ended up being with laser beams instead of any sort of positive mark making. Mm-hmm. And now I put art on quantum computers and in, in laboratories, I love the fact that I can hack my way into an industry through the side door because I help people think more creatively. And a lot of my work in art isn't doing the work in art, it's really mm-hmm. about facilitating creative permission.
0: Yeah, I, I want to ask you about that because that's something you, you're explaining this, which is amazing. And I think to dumb it down for myself so I can, I'm catching up and I'm asking you the right questions. When people think of corporate facilitating, that's these, you know, the simple level. It's like, hey, we're in a group. We're going to do a corporate facilitating project. We're going to get together and we're going to talk about ideas and we're going to do some simple artwork. That's the bad side of it. We've seen that. But your mindset and your thinking of, I want to bring something that helps you to think differently and assault you with visual creativity. Did you come to that on your own or did you come to that through? Working with corporate clients, or was it a hand in hand? How did you get to that point where it, you know, you're so passionate about it? When did it kind of,
1: or did it just click one day? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's not one answer. To unpack that, I do believe in the power of putting paper on a table and using the most basic art tools to get people to look across the table and to the action of art making with the intention of questions and good music. And the time to sit next to people and have conversations with art tools. It's not about the art tools. It's about the conversation that you enacted and gave permission to have. And maybe there's a CEO across the table from the janitor and they've never had permission to talk to each other. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, because there's dope music going and there's crayons on the table, (laughs) all of a sudden they're having a conversation. It's not about the art. Art is the vehicle, the tool. The intention is to get that conversation happening is to get them laughing with each other, is to make a level of trust where there was never a level of trust. And if you can scale down on a table with 20 people, hundred people, 500 people in a room, all with art materials, and hundred minutes later, you've got them going from apprehensive, I'm my own human in my own silo, to laughing with a dozen people and making crazy creative things and changing and drawing on other people's drawings and listening to music and having permission to be a human again, Ultimately, that's the creative win. I do do that. It's I I facilitate for a company called Late Night Art. I do, I facilitate events like that in corporations because most people, especially in the engineering field are afraid to draw a stick figure. Most people say, I can't draw a stick figure for us. Like when was the last time you needed to draw a stick figure? Like don't, <laughs> right. don't tell me about stick figures. Like nobody cares about stick figures. Like it doesn't, it's not a that, thing. That's
0: not in the Google interview you mean?
1: Yeah, like when was the last time I, I did real simple math? Like I'm terrible at real simple stuff. Like don't do simple shit then. Like let's bring up the game. I realized, and I am advantageously playing this card because I know how to apply my art boldly Mm -hmm. in time, not just delivering great artwork, but I know how to show up and show my practice and show my process as an artist in residence and as the creator of the artist resident. It's all about the experience you bring people through. If you can bring people through an experience, you start with nothing or you start with wonder and with awe, and then you give them permission to go along with you on the journey, and you stop through the journey at moments and say, Here's where I am in this process. Anyone have any questions? Y'all notice when I totally messed that up? Y'all notice how I'm totally just a human here and I'm like, I'm pushing myself through this design problem of a painting. Like, wow, it's at 60% right now. It's got some promise. It's at 80% right now. It's ugly. It's got 20% to go to shine this up. People come to me and they've never drawn and they say, that's resonating so hard because I have a creative subject that I'm diving into right now, solutions that I need to be made. And I'm at 80% and it feels ugly and I'm scared. Mm. But when they see that I can push from 80 to hundred in front of them and I can be vulnerable and show that, wow, I may get to hundred and then erase back to 80 again, because I don't like how hundred was hundred percent finished. And they say, I've had so many people take me back to their computers and show me the code they're working on or the amazing piece of hardware that they're making, and they're like, Forrest, let me talk this through to you because I'm at that 80%. And how do I get to 100%? And then we just kind of backtrack and say, what's the intention here? What's the point? What are you trying to imbue in this thing? Let's lay out the challenge of what is that extra 20%. By having that conversation, by making great art next to other great thinkers, it just allows a better creative conversation. One thing, you know, I'm a really good artist when I'm the one making art. But I'm not the most intelligent person. I definitely am not the best finance person or the best math person or science person. But when I'm in a group of people that are all in it to win it, I can be my best self next to everyone else and we can all help each other succeed. And that's rad. When I'm doing my best work in front of them, I may be the guy who's like the giant billboard artist that's making great work. And they're like, hell yeah, Forrest is rocking that. So I can rock this. And then they show me what they're doing. They may be doing this little tiny thing. Like I been at this new thing. Like, look, it's a pin. Like, <laughs> hell yeah, thanks for being inspired. Tell me about it. And then hopefully that person inspires the next person. And that person brings up the next person. And everyone in the room is pumped and is really excited to be there. And we're all making the world a better place because we're better humans. We're amplifying humanity. And across the board, anyone who's successful wants to amplify humanity and wants to tell their story.
0: Are you noticing that there is just a lack of creativity, not a lack of creativity. That's the wrong question. A lack of allowing people to be creative outside of us non-art school nerds. I mean, outside- I think there's a
1: lack of facilitation of creative permission. You know, we have fields like human resources, HR, which includes diversity and inclusion. We want to have a diverse work group that has people of all different types that work together. But it doesn't matter if you have a diverse work group, if you don't have the conversation and the celebration of why we're different, how we're different and how we can learn from each other's attributes, each other's assets, right? The inclusion part of that is how do we tell each other our stories and actually learn from them? I'm the artist. So I'm like the eyesore of the room. Everyone sees what I'm doing and they're like, (laughs) what is that guy doing? They can't not come talk to me. And as a visual anchor, I draw them in. And then I turn around and smile at people. I'm like, hey, what up, yo, let's talk. <laughs> and then all of a sudden they're stuck talking to me and they, they smile just because it's awkward. And then it's awesome. And then it's awe-inspiring. And then they're different than me because they're scientists. So there's immediately diversity in the room. When we can speak to that diversity and the assets of people, and we can bring out like, hey, let's thoroughly dive into what we're not good at and thoroughly dive into what we're good at together, that we all learn like that is creativity so it's not about art school and not art school it's about people being not comfortable enough to show their non-facebook photo you know their <laughs> non like food photo and vacation experience right. like you know you got to show up to work with a, a level of professionalism that's why professionals get hired but you don't if we're not humans, then the, the world is just full of robots. And I'm not interested in necessarily working with robots. I am interested in people who make robots. I love working with the AI team at Google, having these conversations with people who are designing the AI for the world, because I know that I can a little bit spice on the need for humanity in AI. That's how I get in. That's how I'm changing the world in my own little way is I can help the people making these decisions imbue humanness into them because they find humanness more important after they've talked with an artist.
0: Explain that big project, because now we can actually officially really for real talk about this quantum <laughs> computing AI project. You've really got it, real. Google. An artist, in, you know, a lot of people, you know, have heard the term artist in residency program, and they can be anywhere for a few weeks to a few years. And on the simplest term, it's an artist doing art at a place, and people are mm-hmm. watching it, or yeah. her. And it's like, oh, wow, that's cool. And for some corporations, it's like, you know, giving volunteerism and corporate giving it's like we got to have this it makes us human but from your experience and what you're cultivating is you're seeing that these massive super smart engineers and people who are changing the world through math and and engineering have this hole of creativity that needs to be filled correct Or, or is that oversimplifying it
1: I, I don't know if it's a hole. I don't know if there's necessarily a deficit. I don't see it like that. I see it as there are, it may be kind of unclaimed assets, right? Okay. It's kind of like when you do your taxes, you know, there's a bunch of money floating, like, you know, how there's money floating. If you don't allocate that money in the right way, it's all going to flow to the IRS. But if you, <laughs> if you check the right boxes and you're like, let's deduct all of this shit, then the money's just going to flow back when the money's flowing back and forth. The IRS gets the money and hopefully the streetlights stay on and you get some money and hopefully you, you keep food in your refrigerator. That's how the equation works. The creativity equation is there's a ton of need for problem solving in the room. And these are all professionals that solve problems. When I show up and amplify the creative conversation, it isn't bringing more creativity to the conversation that the industry It's just allowing people to think a little bit more, in my case, abstract, maybe weird, maybe more abrupt, maybe more intentionally thinking about asking the why, the why of it, the why are you doing this this way? Why does this matter? Why is this important to you? What do you value as a human and why do you make this thing and how do those things align? When you ask people their story, when you ask people to tell a story about the thing that they're making, they usually come to it in a more personable manner, And it's a less transactional. Scientists are very transactional when it's like, let's scale up this solution to make a thousand of them that work exactly the same. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, let's scale this so it's perfect. But I come in and say, all right, cool. Your goal is to make that perfect. But what does it say to the world? What does Mm. it say to your kid? What does it say to the outsider who's not this otaku, very unique industry-laden jargonite? Like it's, no one speaks that language. It's (laughs) (laughs) how do we speak to humanity with the thing that you're making? And that's really where the creative conversation comes in. Artists in residence. I wholeheartedly believe that artists in residence benefit the internal corporation as much as they'll benefit an artist. I like to call them creative in residence as well because I want it to span the design side and not just be emotional. I don't want it just to be have artists come in, beautify a space, maybe put a mural on a wall, or maybe do a piece of art next to the scientists and not have any interface. I really want it to be about what's the common conversation happening at time A. The artists need to tell me intentionally what they want from time A at the company and what they're willing to give to the equation, to the common conversation. If they can't articulate that, I'm not going to bring them in. If they can't Mm -hmm. tell me Who they are, why they want to be there, how it's going to make their work better and why they're passionate about that. I don't care. I don't care if you're famous. I've had plenty of famous artists say, I want to come put art on spaceships because it's going to make my portfolio better. I don't care. Great. That's awesome. Like go be famous somewhere else. (laughs) I would much rather have, you know, a 16 year old kid that's still in high school, maybe just getting out of high school and saying, I love art. I don't know anything about being a professional artist, but I've read every space book in the world or every quantum book in the world or every, you know, X, Y, Z book in the world. I'm so passionate about this field and creativity. I see where it's going to interface. I can't wait to ask a thousand questions and get involved. Like that's who's going to benefit the corporation. Mm, The famous person, like hire the famous person to do your billboard, right? To do your album artwork, to master the sound of your videos, you know, to film your videos. That's great. Hire a professional to do professional work. Culture doesn't just get amplified by influencers and people who are sponsored. It's all about people who are interested and willing to be passionate and lean in. Wow. So the artists in residence program brings that to the surface. We, at Planet, we did three month artist in residence stints. And my goal was to bring in, you know, a writer and a poet and a muralist and an illustrator and someone who was really into journalistic photography and someone that, who would like do crazy ass, like interfaith dance and interpretive stuff in the space. To me, the weirder, the better, but it had to exist within the confines of the conversation and the safety of the space. I couldn't have welders working above on giant Burning Man sculptures (laughs) in the lab and like dropping hot (laughs) flaming slang on people. Sure. Like that didn't work. I couldn't have people spray painting in the laboratory. I couldn't have people doing murals with oil paint because I couldn't have toxic feels. It was really important that the work that you bring into an artist in residence program has to fit the container. You know, you can't break the envelope that your intention is trying to create, but at the same time, you have to be able to let's push the edges of this envelope. We don't want to pop the sphere, but we need to <laughs> pop it out <laughs> a little bit. Give it a little, give like it a nudge here and there. Add some tension. It's all about adding tension with newness, with juxtaposition of ideas, but As soon as you make it uncomfortable, as soon as like a graffiti router, as soon as you make it wild style so much that the person can't read it, that it's not relative to them, then it's so uncomfortable. Then there is this separation. Mm, And in artist in residence program, the intention isn't to create separation. It's to create a common conversation full of tension. And, okay. you know, tension is amazing. Separation is not like the reason why we're having such amazing, powerful social justice conversations right now is because there's too much separation happening and we're sure. not celebrating the individual tensions that diversity brings. Like, great. That's awesome. You're way different than me. Let's talk about it. Let's be way different together. Let's not be the same <laughs> together and then <laughs> feel really weird about it. Like let's be different together and art, bringing art into the conversation hopefully brings Being weird together, being different together is an honest outcome and fruit of that.
0: That, I mean, goes back to that question of what, why are we supposed to be doing this? And that's the answer of, of it's supposed to be pushing our boundaries to where we're actually having conversations and experiencing each other. And something's going to be creative out of that and you're going to get something.
1: Definitely. But it can't just be conceptual. It can't just be kumbaya, you know, Mm. tacos at lunch and extended coffee breaks and smoke breaks. It can't just be the conversation or else shit doesn't get done. Mm. If you don't make a structure, if you're always lax or you're always trying to innovate, nothing gets done. You know, Innovation <laughs> innovation is playful. Right. <laughs> La- taking naps is, gr- is great for my the middle of my day, but I don't get anything done during a nap. So I got to yeah. really be careful how long I took a nap for. Um, but well, no, it's funny it, you say
0: that innovation is, is not necessarily the best. It's not moving things forward all the time. It's just, we're just innovating for the sake of innovating because innovation is something we need to innovate. Innovation is a
1: buzzword, but innovation without a goalpost in the future is just a hobby that's fun. Mm-hmm. You know, innovation by definition is playful, is wild, is explosive. It's unfathomable answers that you're giving yourself permission to try to find, but there's no roadmap. You know, there's no successful business that is always innovating with no background structure. You know, that's kind of back to the really good design. But if I know that my goal is to get to set amount of money with set amount of scaling and set amount of products and set amount of, um, you know, making things happen in this, whatever space I'm in, and I'm gonna be like, cool. Now I'm gonna dive into some innovation practice and see just what sticks when I throw paint on the walls. That's rad because then I know what sticks when I throw paint on the walls, but I still have my goals in front of me. If I don't ever have my goals, if I hadn't set up my envelope and my way of life, Mm -hmm. my designed life then innovation is just like having my seven-year-old around, like nothing gets done and it's always fun.
0: <laughs> so I'm yeah. exhausted. I think we had a good time. This was And I great. know we did
1: nothing. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but now I'm just sweeping up the mess. <laughs> yeah.
1: My, it, you know, it, but if the goalpost was to show love, was to show compassion, was to hold space, was to let, you know, junior draw everywhere, like do work and be like dad, try to push paint and try to like be bold, try to be in conversation, then you've reached that goalpost. If you're always checking your phone, if you're always in, in some other <laughs> place mentally while you're working with your kid, the intention is not met and, and you have a mental mess. Artists of Residence programs are awesome. The three-month marker makes it so the first month, every single artist thinks they haven't understood what they're going to do. For the first month, they totally flail. The second, the second month is when they get their feet underneath them and they get some traction and they get some momentum and they figure out what's the common conversation. What is it that I really want to bring to the common conversation? Who do I need to meet in order to match what I want to say with what I can say? And, you know, back to a design problem, like what are the variables? And then that's where the artist, the designer, the creative says, I, I get it. I get why I'm here, why I wanted to be here. And I see what I want to make. And the last month is usually when the artists are producing their best work. Mm. And after three months, you know, we could go for a lot more months, but it's not that interesting when you see an artist succeed time after time after time, they kind of become an employee. You're like, cool. Now you're one of us because you're up to speed on how to succeed in the common conversation. You're not bringing anything new to the conversation. (laughs) So therefore we need to pay you full time to be here rather than being that weirdo who's willing to break the rules a little bit. Uh So three months works great. That worked great for me at Planet. I've also done weekend artists in residence programs, you know, with Camp Grounded. I'm in my third year of being the first artist at Google Quantum because in the Quantum group, one, we've had COVID for a year and a half. And two, we are building out a laboratory for the first year. So I've been the primary principal artist working in collaboration with the lead scientist of the program. And he and I worked so well together that I helped him I bring a, a, an artistic voice to his solutions he he needs to create for his company. I'm helping him build the architecture of servicing and amplifying his beautiful culture. And I can help him forecast and say, all right, here's our long-term goals. How can we get everyone involved in a heartfelt manner, in an emotional manner in meeting these goals? You know, maybe it's a stretch goal, maybe it's just a benchmark, like how can we get there? And how can we make it beautiful? And how can we add the human element to it rather than just making quantum widgets? And so it is important. I'm so thankful that it's important to this corporation that I work for. And I'm a contractor, so I have my own corporation that this corporation works with, Mm -hmm. Draw Everywhere is a partner of Google. And so that's really rad. I trust that they want to be human. Anyone making computers and software. You're creating a new language and we're creating a new paradigm. So there's going to be people who take that in all different directions. There's going to be the nicest people in the world. And there's going to be probably be some nefarious people. Yeah, actors for Actors sure. in the for computing sure. space. Like, for sure. that's just what happens.
0: For Google, did you pitch them or did they, did they seek you out? How did that, how did that relationship begin?
1: Yeah, good question. The, how it happened was I was at Planet. We put art on 350, 400 spaceships. I was putting art on rocket ships, you know, making big plain paintings and figuring out how to make giant stickers to put them on rocket ships around the world. I was going and painting, doing graffiti on radio domes around the world, <laughs> celebrating, talking to spaceships, realizing that I wasn't the most creative person in the room, but I could celebrate the creativity of everyone. Going and making beautiful murals in our offices and, you know, Berlin and all these different places, and it's it was so fun, but I was kind of at a point of five years at, at, spaceship number one, I didn't know if I was going to like be there for spaceship number two, you know, I didn't know, I didn't right. know what creating an artist in residence program was going to be in, in the aerospace context. And five years later, I was employee like number 25. And at five years later, I was number, there was like 500 people in the building, like wild, wow. Wow. we had such growth and 15 artists in residence later, the company had changed its personality so many times, and the artists were always there in the common conversational moment to amplify that moment in time. You know, at first it was a spaceship company. At the end, it was an earth imagery company. And there was all the steps in between the transition to go from A to B. And the artists were right there bringing out the best of the humans from end to end. It was beautiful, but I was kind of thinking to myself, what can I draw next? You know, sure. this is rad. This has been a really fun experiment. I put art all over the world. I've met all sorts of my heroes. I've met astronauts, so many astronauts, so many space people. Awesome. I never would have met an astronaut. <laughs> I've right. got, I did artwork that is now in the Smithsonian Museum oh and, God. you know, being the United Nations in Vienna. And my work was in the Guggenheim and it's just in Chabot Space and Science Center right up the street. If I was just focusing on trying to do art for art's sake with artists, I never would have personally gotten any of those spaces. I never would have been in a Smithsonian. Right. So it was the opportunity to change lanes back to your original question. You know, when did the work start becoming better? Um, my work started becoming so much better when I changed lanes from working for artists, with artists, just around artists to other hyper focused mission-driven folks, because then I got to bring my A game all day long and they just, they didn't know what B game was. So they constantly just asked me like, is this your best work? And I just needed to trust that hell yes. And I would, I would just be there showing up and doing the long hours that they'd be doing in the laboratory and they're like we just made another spaceship and i'm like i just made another painting let's laser etch this painting on your spaceship And we was just like we'll just figure it out together like why not uh, that's got to be the
0: weirdest conversations like you know when somebody looks at you is this your best work because i I'm, i can only imagine like, i'm putting something in space it always has to be my best work yes because i'm putting shit in space Yes. Like you said, there's no B game. It's like, wow, there's no B game when you're putting shit in space. There's but not like, there's a whole eh, kind of went there. Eh, <laughs> eh, eh it, we'll call it space.
1: <laughs> I do think that the, the theory of what an MVP is, the minimal viable product, minimum viable product. When you're doing a painting, when you're doing a drawing, you always have to have your radar on like, this always need to be at a point of finish to where I can show it to someone and we can make something with it. Okay. Right? I couldn't do a 300-hour painting at Planet because those paintings needed to be done fast. And when the opportunity happened, like today's the day that we are, you know, talking with the laser person, like, is it done? (laughs) It's done. It's as done as it's going to be today (laughs) and it's fresh. And so, you know, like, is it going to be good? Hell yeah, it's going to be good. Is it going to be ready? Maybe, but is it ready enough? Always. So always be ready enough to ship. Even if you're at 80%, like know your way to a hundred percent finish most of the time and you will be able to nail it. And that's why going back to drawing in your sketchbook, solve your problems small a lot. And then when you have the big problem, you'll have solved the small problems so you can get to a hundred percent faster. You know, you Mm -hmm. don't have to make all the mistakes on a giant mural or a canvas or a, a, professional drawing, like solve your problems in sketches. So then when you do do that hundred percent drawing for cash, like you can get it done and you can, you can rely on like, of course, this is my best work because I've had the thoughts somewhere else. I don't like need to scratch out and do it, take an eraser to my finished piece because I've gone through it on the paper. So <laughs> yeah, I don't even know what your question was, but. I was
0: going to say, you know, we did a few, few hundred tangents, but that's okay when you went. You know, we were talking about the Google Quantum Project. They sought you out, you pitched them, or was it just kind of
1: a kismet thing, or how did that happen? The answer is that my collaborator at Google initially found out about my work at Planet because there was a Google connection to Planet via an aerospace firm, and they heard that I was amplifying culture, doing really beautiful work making unique work in a really unique non-artistic space, non-artistically traditional space. And, you know, I was really ultimately making noise in the industry where there wasn't artistic noise. Mm -hmm. And uh, that story was becoming known. My work wasn't necessarily becoming known, but he came to me and he's like, hey, you break the opaque wall of, of, of science, the opaque sphere of science with this. You get people involved, come work for quantum. He's like, are you attached to aerospace? I'm like, no, but I love these people. It's like well cool we'll stay friends with them <laughs> but, but come <laughs> come work for me and you know unfortunately it's not a bart right away he's down at santa barbara okay and so i i go back and forth during COVID. i've been driving back and forth delivering giant paintings every time i get down there so i, I usually drive a big box truck which is obnoxious <laughs> but then i get to sleep in the box truck which is great Go have to rent a hotel room. So there's a whole story.
0: Like live the adventure, right? Yeah, exactly. Sure. So um when when else am I gonna have the opportunity to sleep in a box truck full of paintings? Yeah, this is gonna be rad. This will be fun. (laughs) Yeah, no idea. Oh, it's so fun. All the stuff you explain and then did he your contact at Google, did he get it before you could explain it? Yeah. 100%. How, how did that feel though? When somebody, cause I mean, to be, you know, you're telling us all this stuff and, and you've got the passion for it and it's inspiring me and I hope everybody who listens to it, but it's gotta be bizarre to have somebody you want to work with say that and mirror exactly what you're thinking. How did that make you feel?
1: It made me feel great, but what it really made me know and see was that my intention that I had set to be a unique artist and find a new way to put art in a unique space and amplify the culture around, me. you know, bring everyone up with me as I did it. It made me know that that was a success. I I wasn't a corporate person before this. I didn't know really what a startup was before I got together with Planet Labs and for five years really learned about startup culture and learned how to uh, speak the language of startup. I came from the entertainment side of it and I worked for DeviantArt and that's where I got comfortable Speaking art with millionaires, you know, becoming comfortable with what's the important conversation here? What's the value that art brings to society? And why is practice a thing? Why does practice matter? It's the universal thing between all artists. It's not about being a rock star, it's about being willing to do more work because you love to do work. Mm-hmm. And so I got to Planet Labs, a place that wasn't speaking the artistic conversation every day but was absolutely solving problems every day. And I was bringing my unique juice. So after five years, like I was good at talking the talk. Mm -hmm. I was speaking with billionaires about art. Now people are just people trying to solve problems. Money value is just another creative solution, you know, so I would talk to these billionaires and they would like the art just as much as everybody else. Everyone loves, you know, beautiful things that makes you stop and grok a story. Mm -hmm. So I was proud of myself, but when Eric came to me, he said, hey, I, w- I would like you to work in quantum and meet so many people, I mean, you're an artist, most people will come and ask you like, hey, can you come do some art with me? Yeah. You're like, I don't have time. I, yeah. I, I, I can't even feel that right now. I'm, I'm busy making art for the person who asked me at the right time to make mm-hmm. art because now I don't got time. So Eric said, you know, here's some photographs that he took of the quantum cryostats, these beautiful machines and the quantum chips. And he said, sitt- he's like, let me just send you some photos. I'm a photographer, I love photography. Let me just send you some photos and see what you think. And I was like, okay, cool. I'm like on the phone with this dude. He cold called me. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Fine. Like, <laughs> Here's my email. Yeah, cool. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Fine.
1: Cool. Send, send me some photos. I opened the photos and I was drop jawed. Oh, I was wow. blown away by his photography. This dude knew how to look at these machines and bring out the gorgeous inherent beauty and the properties at which light shines on these beautiful you know, exotic materials and the size and the scale and the robustness and the uniqueness of this sculpture. I mean, it looks like an upside down jellyfish made out of platinum that's been frozen in a gold bath. Like, oh jeez, like, <laughs> you know, it, this, it's something that Jules Verne wrote about a hundred years ago. It's so wild that when he sent me these photographs of these machines, and I was like, wow, you got me. Your art mm, got me. The Duende of your photography got me, tell me more. We share a love of nature. We both grew up in the mountains. We both love being in nature. We both love speaking nature. He's like, Forrest, the quantum mechanics, which are the quantum scientists, we call them quantum mechanics. They speak the language of nature by manipulating electrons. They speak the language of nature. Your paintings speak the language of nature and celebrate it in a non-traditional space and setting. Like, we're an obvious match, but let's work together. I was like, wow, I get it. That's some (laughs) interesting math. Hold
0: on. I'm not done writing this down because this is my (laughs) new mantra. Hold on. Talk slower. (laughs) Whoa. Okay.
1: Yeah. That's like, that's not saying like one plus one equals two. That's like saying Grover's equation plus Grover's equation (laughs) equals two Grover's equations. You're like, (laughs) I just, I'm not following this, but I totally get what you mean. And so... It, it was like a bromance at first sight. We, we became quick friends and we've been working together for three years. And it's been absolutely beautiful to have someone who asks a lot of questions, who trusts my professional nature, who really drives me to create solutions that aren't just basic, that aren't just like top of mind. He's so good at bringing out the creativity in me and getting me to think deep and adding different variables together to get to a definitive point that isn't just simple. I mean, he's the perfect person to, to be friends with and work with because he's amazingly intelligent and he understands how to drive creativity out of me. And I do the same thing with him. I'm like, mm. Eric, what about this and this and this and this, how can we get to this point? You know, really it comes down to having permission to be creative together, to ask each other a lot of questions. Like, cool. I'm seeing this as a light. Do you see this as a thing that we can do? Okay. How can we get there? How can I support the problems that you have right now? How can I need some support in this, like really holding each other accountable and then bringing in other team members and saying, Hey, you need some support over here, I will gladly spend some time over here with you and help you create your solution. I'm not a bandaid. I don't speak quantum computing, but I do speak impactful graphic beauty. And when you say we are going to make this laboratory out of a warehouse that used to make breast implants, but now we're needing to make quantum computers. Like let's switch it up. My gears start turning like, okay, what's the focal point? Okay. What's the approach? Okay. How many walls can you see from each point? Okay. How many different places are we going to sit people to see this stuff? Can we put lines on the floor? Can I paint those walls? What happens if I paint this yellow? All of the different variables that come out. It's really permission to ask questions. And Eric has all permission to say, no, 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 no. And number nine, great idea. And so it's, it's not about always showing up with perfect work. It's about always showing up with the practiced ideas that if nine of them don't get, if you don't even swing and like nail nine of them. Like the one you hit is going to get out of the park and always doing that, always being ready with great ideas and always being willing to say like, cool, this is really hard to do X, Y, and Z thing. I'm going to need this amount of time and just communicating, like not hiding stuff, just being an honest artist about what it takes to do your work. And you know, most people, if you're honest with how you're making your piece, they'll give you extra time unless Mm. you're like, it's gotta be done by next Saturday and then that's what we're paying you for. You know, usually if you're a human, another human will be a human with you. You you can have a conversation. When there's good conversation, you know, there's more richness to be had. Yeah. So it's an amazing situation. And if I leave Google, I will have learned a lot from Google. I hope to always be dear friends with Eric. And I hope to always see him doing his most creative work. And I will hold him accountable for that always because he's dear to me now. And the next situation that I find myself in that I hopefully have designed for Hopefully I can find and connect with the people that are there doing the same work passionately and continue to work with them because I'm damn passionate Mm -hmm. and I love to solve problems. You know, I love the problem of making more money right now. I've been (laughs) really studying (laughs) finances, really studying investments, really studying entrepreneurism because I see that as so creative now. Like, wow, I want to learn how to speak that language too. This world that we live in runs on capital. So why not make that a creative? thing to figure out as well. And, you know, Google is based on a lot of capital, so might as well ask a lot of questions while I'm there and I stay was, in that ecosystem.
0: I mean, I was gonna ask, I mean, you've, you've touched on a lot of these, you know, you have what is the, you know, the greatest, you know, path of, of being a working artist, and, and that's, for so many people, that's the most, the, to me, that's the pinnacle. You're a working artist. You're, you're getting up every day and you're doing something creative. Mm-hmm. That's great. And that's what we should be striving for. You touched on a lot of skills, being able to communicate, being able to iterate, being able to have eight, nine, 10 ideas and go, they said, no, okay, let's try another one. What are some skills that you've learned along the way that have really kind of saved your butt Hmm. when you're doing your work And, and skills that have helped you to, you know, get to the point where you can have a very simple conversation
1: over crayons with a billionaire? Yeah. The skills that have saved my butt is learning how to read books. And I was never (laughs) a reader. And I mean, honest that I can honestly (laughs) say this, but I'm laughing
0: because I think that's one of the things we all forget. It's like, oh crap, I got to read about this.
1: But the utility of this, right, is being, I didn't grow up reading. When I was 30, I got my first pair of glasses. I was like, oh wow, I can actually see the book and not fall asleep when I'm trying to read. I just needed glasses early on and I never got my eyes checked. But because I'm such an adherent drawer, I don't have a lot of time to hold a book unless I'm sketching in it. But I did find that I had 10 hour stretches where I'd be at a painting for 10 years straight. And I found audiobooks. And now mm. I eat audiobooks for information. I want to learn about everything that has to do with the next step of where I want to go. And so I listen to audiobooks hungrily and voraciously and endlessly, constantly diving into new concepts that have to do with the concepts that I learned from. I'll read a sci-fi book just because I need to, you know, understand some wild ideas, and then I'll read a business book and an entrepreneur book, and then a self-help book, and then a book about history or, you know, whatever. But I will continue to read. I've read probably 500 books that I never would have picked up because of audiobooks. The way to maintain a conversation with highly successful people is to speak highly successful ideas with them. And highly successful ideas are the ideas that people write about in books and that other people read. That's the equilibrium is intelligence with intelligent people. The mm. equilibrium of that like, it really comes down to what's the currency here, if I'm working with kids, I'm not talking philosophy, I'm talking play, you know, so I want to know that the language of play, if I'm with my partner, then I want to know the language of empathy and love and caring and compassion, as well as what she's interested in, in what's the middle ground there, when I'm talking with You know, my roommate, who's going to be a professor in a wildly unique field, I want to know enough about a middle ground there because the currency there is the interplay of of knowledge and information and friendship. When I want to talk to a billionaire, I don't talk to them about art. I talk to them about a niche that they understand and a niche that I understand that has to do with art and their passion. Because then they're like, oh, dang, tell me more. And another thing that I've always, that I've learned to be 100% gold is that word passion. Ask people who you love, who you want to talk to the simple question of what are you passionate about and and what do you do when you have free time and what's your passion project? Anybody will answer that question. It doesn't matter if they're a billionaire or or a street urchin. And if you have the patience to listen, to like drop in and listen with people and get a story out of them, then you will become... One step closer to trust and one step closer to humans, trust in humans. And then you probably be able to have an in when you do need to ask them for a favor, if you do the beauty of working with people who have access to capital access to time and space is that if you bring out the best in them, then they will bring out the best in you and they have the ability to working with a lot of starving artists. When I was a starving artist, we didn't have access to much. We're like always struggling for the same crumbs and. I loved the hustle of struggling for crumbs, but I didn't know that there was a table above the crumbs, dropping crumbs. Mm, and as soon as I like got wow. a seat at the table, I could see like, there's still people hustling for crumbs. How can I bring them up to the table with me, still do the same exact work that I've always been doing. The great work that I'm at really crazily passionate about the practice that I love, but solve other people's problems as well as mine with my design and art skill. And that's when I always had a a place at the table and I could keep my crumbs and I could, you (laughs) know, and I could give the crumbs to people who I wanted to, and who's willing to say, who else can we bring onto this project that would help the project and how can we compensate them and and value them in the way that they need to be valued? That's rad. Uh, One thing that I I learned from reading the book by Chris Hadfield about aerospace, I, I learned this when he came through the lab and he had his books and he dropped one off. He had the idea of always being number zero. And I know this is being a dad. It's totally true. Being a partner of someone who's also getting educated is totally true. Being a, you know, a, a kid of, a, of parents who I love and they have their own egos as well. It's like, by being a zero, if you're always helping and supporting those around you and you just have no problem letting go of your ego and helping and support, then those who are around you will always support you. And you this, and you'll create this ecosystem of support. When you're trying to be number one, especially as an artist, you're always cutting someone else's throat to be number one. In graffiti, we're always trying to be king of each other. And when you're king and someone you're always kicking someone's ass off the throne and no Mm. one likes that. It's a pissing contest. It's a battle. There's always angst and always a fear and always apprehension and always like madness to that where. If you're number zero, then you can just bring everybody else up with you or, or like push them up and enjoy bringing them up and helping them celebrate their own creativity. And then you just get in. Cause you're always got your sketchbook. There's never not opportune moment to be creative. And if you're number two, then you always feel like a number two. You're always supportive <laughs> without being brought up. So yeah. I love that idea. And as an astronaut, it's like, if they die, you die. If they fail, you fail. You know, if the person that you're in the rocket ship with presses the wrong button, you die. So you make sure that you help them remember their sequence of buttons and they remember the sequence of buttons for you as an artist. I mean, I still have to do 200 hour paintings to wrap them around quantum computers, there's nothing easy about doing a 10 foot wide by four foot tall painting of Yosemite to wrap around a quantum computer that's never been done before. And I have to sew the damn canvas and figure out how to sew the Velcro on and sew it to a backer and wrap it. in make the print and get it captured. Like I'm solving all those problems in order to make this painting live on a quantum computer that then a non-artist scientist can take off at moment's notice when they need to get in this thing. You know, I need to figure out how to get an image onto the side of a spaceship or on the side of anything. Making the art is only 10% of the equation. You know, it's all about what's the point? What's the intention? And how do I nail that intention of getting art on said thing in a way that if you see a problem, there's a serious problem. But if you don't see any of the details, like that means I nailed all of the solutions so beautifully that only that 10% art shines in the end as 100% awesome.
0: You brought up something that I want to ask you about because this is something that's always, I think it's a generational thing. I mean, I'm 43 uh, and you know, we've had some changes in society and, and you know, it's something that comes up a lot. You mentioned about being a zero and, and, and how that works. But how does competition play into what you
1: do? Huh? Yeah. I mean, I'm always down to battle. I love a game. I love to compete, but my battle is a battle with myself. Competition is going to come when I'm asked to pitch an idea, when Mm -hmm. I'm asked to have a request for proposals and I give a proposal next to a hundred other applicants, that's when I'm battling the smartest thing you can do and that I've learned is choose your battles, Mm -hmm. right? Choose your competitions. If you are a good communicator and if you have rapport with people and you know how to market yourself and you know how to get people's eyes on your work, then you don't need to battle people because you already have a direct connection with people and you can solve without pitching. You know, there's a beautiful book book called the Win Without Pitching Manifesto. And that summarizes this whole point in the sense, like if you're pitching, you're fighting. If you're Mm. pitching, you're, you're battling. So step away from the pitch, look for opportunities that aren't pitch ish. And then you don't have to battle as much, but I always have to battle in the sense, like I always have to have my A game. Like I show up in a suit and a tie when I go to meetings, (laughs) hundred percent. I'm not lying. I show, I like, I have three suits in my closet, like waiting for meetings and I'll go to a meeting. I was going to show up a year to do this podcast yeah. in a suit at your yeah. lab. I, that's that's <laughs> exactly what I would have done. Shorts
0: and flip-flops. It would have been a nice, a nice image. <laughs> if,
1: how to show up is be ready to show up. I show up to every professional meeting in a suit because no one expects us to be outdressed by the artist. Mm. All of a sudden, I'm the best dressed person in the room. And if I know that it's that's the MVP of getting people's attention is just outdressing people, then I win. Like everything else I say is like, just on top of the cake. I've done, I am the cake, Mm. you know, but don't show up, like don't show up in a shirt and flip-flops to an executive meeting. You just don't do that. Sure. If you do that, then you're like all the comfortable programmers in the room that didn't dress up to go to work. And that's, that's great to be comfortable, but it's totally expected. Mm. And when you show up unexpected in your A game, then all the battles are happening around you. But you're like, I'm an armored vehicle. like, you're not messing with me. I'm I'm getting (laughs) like to my goal. And then you go there with a goal in mind. So yeah, competition is amazing when it is part of the opportunity and part of the the situation. When competition comes in, it's usually like when my truck gets a flat tire and I'm like, whoa, now I got to compete with time because I have set myself a goal. Or all of a sudden I can't find my damn keys when I need to leave the house. Or like my partner's (laughs) like, hey, can you, I need you to be home tonight at six o'clock. And I'm like, I got a, a meeting somewhere. Or I'm like, hey, big, you know, I want to spend some time with you. And she's like, yo, I got pill work. That's the a real deal challenges of competition. <laughs> right. When you're competing against like <laughs> things you have no competition or no power over.
0: Yeah, those, those but, giants are hard uh, to vanquish. man,
1: you know, but be a good Buddhist in this sense. And like, don't worry about the things that you can't control. And if you can control it, then fix it.
0: I'm not going to ask you any more questions because I don't want to ruin that. Um, uh, I, no, seriously. I mean, I'm going to ruin it now by still talking, but you know, that's one of those things where I, so many people, you know, you've given some great guidance because I think that's the thing that, you know, from the competition, it was like, I got to be better than that guy. I got to do it better. I got to be better. Is so hard. And it seems like it's such a way of ruining things. But so much of us, you know, myself and people I went to school with is like, no, I got to be better than you. It's one of those things where it's like, yeah, but that's not the right definition.
1: Yeah. I mean, be better than them. Sure. Like be the best person in the room. That's rad, but you're in the wrong room. If you're always the best person in the room, like you're not learning nothing. If you're the the smartest person in the room or the best person, you know, in the professional world, I mean, let's give a little advice to students. If you show up and you're the best person in the room, you've got nowhere to go. You're already king and everyone's going to knock you off your pedestal and you will soon be second. But if you show up and you are your best self in the room and you are bringing everyone else in the room to their best selves, then you will always have a spot at the table. If you show up in the room and if you haven't practiced, and if you haven't given yourself permission to dive in and be confident that you can make a solution because you've done a thousand pages in a sketchbook that month, but then you have no place at the table because you're not ready. Mm. You know, stay ready, get ready, stay ready. And then you can comfortably relax when you have time to relax because you've designed your success when you need your success. Don't expect people to hand you anything. If you haven't done the work, don't expect to do great work. If you haven't done the work, you know, the best, absolute best advice I got in grad school, if I would have gotten this, this advice before I went to grad school, I probably wouldn't have gone to grad school. So, all you beginner <laughs> students. Don't tell that's, Bill Mon. I told that, you this. That's always the best advice. It's like, <laughs> oh
0: man, why didn't you tell me that three years ago?
1: <laughs> well, thankfully Bill Mond gave me some golden advice. Halfway through my master's degree program at the Academy of Art, he said, this was midpoint review. I was stressing yeah. on pitching to him my idea. And I came to him with this fully fledged idea with one of those packets, like 30 pages, all the work that I'd done up to the point da da! da, da great idea. He didn't even look at it. He's like, Forrest, what do you really want to do? I told him X, Y, Z what I thought he wanted to hear. He's like, I don't want you to write a thesis because we don't write theses at this school, but what we do is. I need you to get a notebook that you can always have with you and write down every single creative idea you have. I want you to notice things in the world, be so voraciously eating, successful solutions that you can put into your artwork and amazing successes that other artists have had, things that you can steal, things that you can bring into your work, things that you notice. Make yourself a better thinker and learn from your own gleanings of success that you will become your own genius. And he said, when you die, I want them to find a stack of sketchbooks under your bed and know why you got to every moment, every successful piece of artwork you did. Mm -hmm. When we see your successful pieces of art, it's a successful piece of art and you don't need to say anything about it because it's a successful piece of art carrying an idea. You don't need to show the sketchbooks to the world. But he said, you don't need to write a thesis because that's going to be a contrived piece of writing, just like you're nervous at this moment. Write down every idea you have, and you will have written a thesis a thousand times over by the time you die and become a master, because you will have done the work. And so a year and a half, I had like 25 sketchbooks when I oh met with them again. Wow. You know, I came with a backpack of sketchbooks <laughs> and I put them on the table and I went, it, it, like in, in Montgomery, right? No, not Montgomery, um, in Powell, I showed up and I like had my backpack and my, my work, my final work, and I did way more pieces. I did like 35 final pieces, but I only needed 10. And I showed up and like, put it on the table in my giant backpack. It's like, look, Bill, check it out. I got 25 sketchbooks. Eat that up. Are you going to look at them? And he's like, no. Did you do them? Did you do what I asked you to do? And he's like, I don't, I don't need to see them. If you did the work, you did the work. And I wouldn't even understand the work. So just continue to do the work. And the, the mm. conversation probably ended there, wow. you know, like of what the master's degree earnings was about. He's like, did you do the schoolwork? Yes. Did you constantly do the work here in your sketchbook? Yes. He's like, then you've earned it. Go forth and spend your career doing the work and you will earn it. And then we talked technique about my, the work that I had brought and, you know, got some good critique on it. But no one has ever asked me to see my final work from grad school. No one ever has has ever asked me to see my degree. Like no one, nobody cares about the art. People only care about themselves and seeing their problems being solved through your art. Mm. Do you hear me, students? Yeah. No one cares about your art. People only care about themselves. So if you make that person feel good by your interaction with them and you help them solve their problem, then you will always have a job bringing your best self and your best tools and your best work to them. So that's the biggest advice You will never have a career unless you learn how to solve other people's problems with your best work. So there you have it, some great advice and a great
0: story. And I hope you took some notes because if you've ever dreamed about a career in art and design, more and more art and design career opportunities are on the rise and employers are on the hunt for the next generation of talented and of course skilled creative professionals. Here at Academy of Art University, you will get those work ready skills that employers want. You can study on-site in downtown San Francisco and, of course, anywhere in the world with our online programs. To request info about our 40-plus areas of study in art and design, including game development, industrial design, illustration and fine art, just visit our website at academyart.edu slash creativemind. My name is Bobby Brill. Thanks for listening.